From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. There's a community building theory known as the third place. It's not home and not work where people spend most of their time, but a third neutral space. Think churches, cafes, bars, and parks, which allow for more open, creative interaction. In many traditionally black neighborhoods, it's the barbershop. Photographer Antonio Johnson has been documenting these anchors for informal civic life and looking good across the country and more recently behind bars. His project is called You Next. Antonio is among the contributors for Pop-Up Zine Atlanta. That's an evening of performed journalism for that audience at that moment on stage in a camera-free, tweet-free zone. I'm a contributor, too, along with others, and will be at Windmill Arts Center in East Point next Tuesday, October 8th. But first, Antonio, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I've not been in a lot of barbershops, I admit. (laughs) How do you describe to people who don't know what these mysterious places are like? So the barbershop is like the quintessential spot for all of your basic life when it comes to finding out what's happening in your community, making sure that you look good and stay fresh and be surrounded by guys and some women um, who really affirm who you are um, in this world. And that's across generations. Across across... generations. It doesn't matter how much money you have, um, what your educational background is. It's the it's the meeting spot. Well, you grew up in Philly where your uncle had a barbershop, right? Yes. What do you what do you remember from being there? I remember mostly the time that I was at my uncle's shop, this like wood paneling, um, him spinning me around in the chair. He always told me how peasy my head was, like how I always needed a haircut. But at the same time, he would always make it really clear to me and just let me know that he got me. That I would be safe, that after this haircut, I would look completely new and transformed. And it's something that I just really looked forward to, um, you know, weekly. And this is a place where you must have seen grown-ups. You must have, I mean, you see people you wouldn't normally see? Yeah, so I... Um it was a crash course in just learning about the world around me um, with like really wide eyes. Um, it would be in my either my uncle's shop or the shop that I went to with my dad, where I just saw these guys who you know knew my father outside of him being like my dad, mm-hmm. but he was like a basketball player, and they would share these stories. And I got a real glimpse of what the world was through their stories. Um, when you know when they would come in through the music that they would you know listen to, uh, it was really transformative that way. And you were working a corporate job many years later after getting your peasy haircut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when when the idea for this project, You Next, came to you. First of all, You Next, where is that title from? So You Next is something that you hear in the barbershop, you know, in every barbershop in every city. It is both a question that you, you know, can ask or is it is a statement that the barber tells you where you are in line. Uh-huh. And um, I hope that, you know, with this, people understand that you can be next at whatever it is you want to do, whatever it is you want to be as you get that uh, haircut. A larger message here. Yes, yes. So where did you get the idea for doing this project? So a few places, um, you know, like life just kind of like gives you these little like moments. One, um, I went to see Hannibal Burst at the Apollo and he shared this little quick joke. It kind of like had nothing to do with his segment, but he mentioned that, you know, have you ever gone into a barbershop and felt depressed or, or have you ever needed a haircut, but you just... Have you ever been depressed but just really needed a haircut? Uh That was the joke. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yes, I have. And then a few months later, I went to uh, to Cuba and I saw all of these little corner barbershops that just reminded me um, of home. And I... I said to myself, I think that I need to do a project that documents um, 
this space and really just explore is what this community actually is. And from there, I started to write things down, um, you know, create some inspiration around it. And here I am today after a very successful Kickstarter. Um, that I, <laughs> so that I you jacked in your corporate job yeah. and you're like, I'm going to go hang out at barbershops. Exactly. I um, I embarked on a 10 city tour and saw hundreds of barbershops, met thousands of men and heard so many different stories. Oh, are they similar in, from place to place? They really are. They're, the conversation is always lively. Um, there is this, these, these elements of, of ritual that happen in every city that I feel um, is not by coincidence. Um, it is really just a, it's, it's very special um, how we hold each other up um, and can affirm who we, how, how we see ourselves to the world. That's interesting because I think of, you know, okay, so these places are mysterious to me. First yeah. of all, I'm a woman. I'm a white woman. Yeah. I'm not going to walk into the corner barbershop right. uh, necessarily in a neighborhood. So it does feel like this kind of, I don't know, secret ritualistic place to me. But also it's interesting because, you know, men are... They're peacocks. They're they're getting themselves looking good. Yeah. Everybody wants to show off. <laughs> Everybody wants to feel like they are that that the you know, the man. But something is happening, I think, in the barbershop where we're starting to understand that um you can be reflective in that chair. You can um have an opportunity to share what it is that you are going through and feel like you have a community that can support you, whether it be your barber or whether it be, you know, the guys who are also waiting. It's this crowdsourced therapy that happens uh -huh. sometimes um, in the shop that I feel like is really special. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, makes this project so special to me is because access to health care is an issue that we're all facing all over the country. Um, how can a barbershop be you know, fill that void. Mm. Um, and that's one of the ways I feel like, especially from a mental health perspective. Uh, that's interesting. So much cheaper and much shorter than therapy <laughs> <laughs> and a lot more input. So what are you looking for when you're taking photos of people in barbershops? I'm looking for those really special moments. So it could be, you know, someone with their eyes closed in the chair. It could be, you know, two kids playing on a chair waiting for a haircut or, you know, getting some candy from a machine. It could be um, just a barber just waiting in the chair, um, waiting for a person to come in. Um, it is those little moments, those small moments in between a cut, I think, that really um, make my eye uh you know, or, or catch my attention. Yeah. Photographer Antonio Johnson is my guest. His project is called You Next and explores community and power of the neighborhood barbershop. He will be one of the storytellers at Pop-Up Zine Atlanta next week. All right. So you ended up expanding upon this project beyond the 10 cities that you visited and visited the Fulton County Prison on Haircut Day. Yeah, yeah. What, what? Why did you go there? So uh, it was the jail, Fulton County Jail. I... um have always been fascinated by the unconventional barbershop. Um, where do these guys go when they, you know, can't go into inside of a regular one? So I um, had this idea a while ago to go inside of a jail um, to see what this to see to honestly to test my theory about 
if this is really a space for wellness, um, what happens, you know, after you get a haircut? So I uh, reached out to the sheriff who is a grad of Morgan State, just like I am. And um, we made that connection. And um, I I was literally blown away um, by that experience. I really had no idea what to expect. I had never been inside of a jail before. Um, I had all of these these this ball of nerves of what to expect and what 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 I would see there. But what I saw was guys who really just wanted a chance and an opportunity to um, present themselves as they see themselves in their mind mm-hmm. outside of any convictions, outside of any, um, you know, upcoming court dates. Just that. Who am I when I am completely groomed? And were they, uh, this idea of the third space, it's a safe, relaxing space, as you said, a lot of interaction, a kind of therapy. Is it the same in jail? It really is. Um, You know, there were guys just waiting, just chatting like it was in the barbershop. When some guys sat in the chair, their eyes were closed, their legs were crossed, their hands were folded in a really meditative and reflective state. And I talked to a few of them, and one of them specifically, before his haircut, I asked him, I, I said, who are you? How would you describe yourself without a haircut? He hadn't had a haircut in about 90 days. And he said he didn't feel human. And I kind of just, you know, took a beat and let that just sit, you know, because I wanted to sit with that as well, because I, you know, have access to get a haircut whenever I want. I'm shooting in barbershops all the time. That's not something that I um, face. Um, But as the haircut continued, I saw the light start to flicker in his eye again. And as the haircut was over, you know, I followed up with that question again. And as I asked him how he felt now, and he said he felt like himself human again. And that was really profound and um, really made me feel like, okay, this is the work that I should be doing. um, And I'm just honored that I could be in that space to see that. So was it the attention he was given? He was special for that moment sitting in a chair, which, you know, could almost be a kind of throne in a way. Yeah, I definitely think that it was the attention. I think that, you know, for a lot of these guys, they could feel like they are forgotten and they're not a part of society. And a, a haircut is one of those basic things that make you feel a part of a community. And especially when you have, you know, you're surrounded by your brothers. Um, that can really make you feel very special. Um, so I definitely think it's that. And, you know, when you can be still and be quiet, you know, one of like the meditative thing, mm-hmm. the portion of that, I think is really strong. And um, it, it made a huge difference. It's funny because I think a lot of messages about women's wellness now mm-hmm. are especially focused on what's on the inside. You mm-hmm. know, do your meditation, do the kind of quieting of the self, nurture that kind of inner peace. And that's more important than the outside, mm-hmm. which, of course, is a hard sell in yep. a culture like ours that has embedded standards about how things look on the outside. So you're talking about somebody walking into a barbershop 90 days, you know, he's uh, he's behind bars and feeling differently. How what what's the inside work and what's the outside work here? That's a really good question. Um, I think the inside work is examining how it is you would like to feel and channel and channeling that. And then as the haircut, being able to show that thought um, 
That you're cared for, that you're you're up to snuff kind of thing. Yeah, that, yeah. that you're cared for, that you belong here, mm. that, you know, whatever you may be going through, I don't have to look like it. And I think that that's something that black men have had a lot of work <laughs> trying to uh, trying to deal with. So uh, before we close, I want to ask you a little bit more about this wellness idea. You've spent a lot of time in barbershops. These are places, you know, real estate inside of cities that are often changing around them mm-hmm. very quickly. Where do you see them going from here? Ooh, so I believe that the barbershops and, you know, HBCUs and church, we all need this gentrification plan of what could happen. Um, But for this specifically, I I want to make people or, you know, ask people to reimagine what the barbershop can be. How do we um, serve our communities moving forward? And there are examples of how barbershops are doing that in L.A., in Oakland, with um, working with doctors and medical professionals to check for hypertension and early signs of diabetes um, while they're in the chair. Because like I said before, you know, some people don't have access to health care. So how do we meet them where they are? And the barbershop is one of those spaces. And, you know, the barber is very respected and trusted so you can feel comfortable um, going through that journey with them. And then you have examples in Philly, you know, my hometown, where they're checking, where they're helping people vote. So that's really important, too. So civic life out of the barbershop. Antonio Johnson, thank you so much. Thank you. Antonio is an Atlanta-based photographer. His project is called You Next, How Black Barbershops Save Lives. You should look at it online. Among the contributors for Pop-Up Zine Atlanta, up next, some well-founded proposals and real-world experience for helping Georgia's alarming maternal mortality rates. Stay with us. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. State agencies are looking for ways to comply with Governor Kemp's order to slash budgets by 4% for the upcoming fiscal year and another 6% the following year, including GPB, by the way, which is funded in part by the state of Georgia. The Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta is also being affected by cuts. The historically black college had planned to use a $500,000 grant to launch a Center for Excellence on Maternal Mortality. It's a problem that disproportionately affects women of color. Well, that grant from the Department of Community Health could be eliminated as part of statewide budget cuts. Dr. Natalie Hernandez is assistant professor at Morehouse School of Medicine. She sat down with my colleague Leah Fleming, who asked why black women in Georgia are at least three times more likely to die during or shortly after pregnancy than white women. So it's it's multi-level. There are a lot of contributing factors. Um, the leading causes for um, women in general are cardiovascular and coronary diseases. And we know with health disparities, black women have higher rates of obesity and amongst other things. A big contributing factor to that and what the research has documented is this thing related to discrimination, racism, the stressors related to being a black woman and facing those things every single day. And that's why when people talk about maternal mortality, it has no socioeconomic level. You know, it affects women with no degree versus a woman with a PhD. And so you have many women being affected by this issue. But um, the underlying issues related to it are systemic. You have also women who have intermittent access to health care. And so they're not constantly or, you know, regularly seeing their health care provider or seeking their prenatal care appointments. And then a lot of the deaths happen in the fourth trimester or what we call after you give birth. And so um, a lot of that, again, 
you know, some women lose their coverage once they give birth if they have Medicaid. And so when you don't have that coverage, you don't have the resources to be able to maintain your appointments and thus seeking the care that you need. And understanding the conditions, I don't think there's been a lot of education for women about what these conditions mean and how they affect them, even once they give birth. You think, oh, I gave birth, I'm in the clear. Mm -hmm. But you're not. This is actually one of the more critical moments of your life as a new mother. So. Oh, once you leave the hospital, go home, yes. caring for yourself. Yes, and the Georgia report, they show the significant amount of the deaths that happen to these women after, happen after they give birth. Uh, this is another staggering piece of uh, data. Georgia's Maternal Mortality Review Committee found that 60% of pregnancy-related deaths in the state are preventable. Yes. That is shocking. It is shocking. Um, it's disheartening that that 60% of them could have been prevented. I think, you know, when women are coming in and they're being seen, there are a lot of things that are being missed. And that's where people talk about this discrimination. People are, particularly for black women, are dismissing their symptoms, dismissing the fact that they may have pain, or when they're saying, I'm swollen, oh, it'll go down, not realizing it can be something very serious. Um, and, and again, with preventing, with prevention, having access to care is so crucial. We still have 20% of women in the state of Georgia that don't have access to care. If we would have, you know, expanded Medicaid or even extend Medicaid, you have women that would be covered. But our most vulnerable populations are not being covered by health care right now. So what would the Center for Excellence in Maternal Mortality focus on? What would it do? Yeah, so Morehouse School of Medicine brings a unique niche. We our our whole mission of the school in general is to lead and you know and create and advance health equity. Mm-hmm. And that's where we want to come. We want everyone to have equal level playing field, right? Um, And our program, and Georgia, again, should be commended for the efforts, including, you know, um, developing the Maternal Mortality Review Committee. Um, But we had a three-pronged approach to what we wanted to do. One was to conduct research. Uh, A lot of research is focusing on the woman that died. We wanted to focus on the woman that almost died. What were the conditions that led to them almost dying? But we want to give voice to women's lived experiences and empower black women to feel that their voices can be heard and how we can alleviate that. We wanted to serve as a resource to be able to implement um, the research, to be able to work with our you know, government agencies in the state to get the full picture of what's happening to women. Then uh, you know, Morehouse School of Medicine, we're unique in that we can do training. We're a medical school. And a lot of this has to deal with providers and providing care to women. And so creating learning collaboratives, um, training our physicians to understand the unique experiences of women, um, cultural competency, implicit bias training. We talked about racism, unconscious bias training. Um, And then the last part of that would be community engagement, because we can do all this work, but if we don't engage the community, if we don't educate them, if we don't have them feel empowered to make the right choices, to understand the right questions to ask the providers, then all the work we've done is for nothing. So I know a couple of pregnant women in uh, my life. They are black women. They Mm -hmm. are pregnant. What would you tell them to do in order to have a successful pregnancy? I mean, should they be looking for a black doctor? What do black women do 
because I'm thinking they they hear this information and they they may know it mentally. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they want to have a healthy pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. You want a doctor. So, yes, outcomes with black physicians improve a woman's experience. But overall, I think you just want a doctor that you feel listens to you, understands your concerns, are documenting you. For a lot of women, and I remember from my own experience, my prenatal care appointments were only five minutes. I go in, they check, you know, you do a sonogram, they check for the heartbeat, they measure you, and then you're done. And oftentimes you spend more time waiting than your actual experience. And so you want to ensure as a woman that you feel empowered to ask the right questions. And I think that's one of the trainings that we wanted to do was you flip the script. Now I'm in the driver's seat and I'm going to be in charge of my own health and make you accountable for those things. Um, another thing is, you know, knowing the right questions to ask. Sometimes, you know, doctors come in with information overload and you don't understand a word that they said. But culturally, sometimes we just take what a, doc a physician says, right, because that's authority and we're used to listening to authority mm -hmm. and they know best. But uh, you know your own body. You know what's best. Women have been giving birth since mankind and we didn't have physicians and stuff and yes you know infant mortality was higher and we've gotten better but we it's a natural process and has become so medicalized that we forget about the human experience and what is behind that mm. so i would just say feeling empowered you know if you don't like your doctor you have the right to switch your physician you don't have to stick with the same doctor sometimes it's uncomfortable or it's a nuisance to do that but you're in charge of your own life, and you need to make those decisions for yourself. And and I know it, it took me a while to do research. I searched for my own pregnancies, the C-section rates of all the hospitals. That's public information. You can under, you, you can research that. The C-section rate of my own midwives. So I worked with certified midwives and, and doulas, social support is so important in this whole experience. Mm -hmm. and, and, and those are the things I think women should be looking for. Mm -hmm. And I want to say two things. I also think that uh, going through like the church mm -hmm. uh, or some, you know, talking to someone in your own personal life could help in terms of selecting a doctor. And the other thing I want to say, I don't mean to give off the impression that a white doctor cannot treat yeah. a black mm -hmm. woman, because I think that there are plenty. Yeah. That can. Yeah. No, definitely. I know for me, my preference is for someone that looks like me, mm -hmm. someone that understands my cultural preferences or understands that. You know, I describe things physically. So even if I may be experiencing anxiety and depression, I'm not going to say, well, you know, my brain, you know, I'll say, well, you know, I feel like I have heart palpitations and, you know, I'm sweaty palms and I can't sleep. You know, I think I think there are cultural nuances in how we describe symptoms. And sometimes a physician that may not be of the same race or ethnicity may not understand that or discount it. And we've seen we've seen it played out. I mean, even. Grey's Anatomy had that episode with, you know, the doctor and she kept saying, I know I'm having a heart attack and she's a physician and she's telling them and they're telling her no. But she knew deep down inside what was going on with her. Ah, know? yeah. Yeah. So. It's about listening. Yeah. yeah. Listening. Listening. listening yeah. Definitely. So in 2014, you talked about this lawmakers, they established this Maternal Mortality Review Committee that mm -hmm. studies these individual cases and then synthesizes the conclusions into a report. Uh, but that that work is tedious and yes. it has been slow to materialize. Yes. And I'm wondering, 
now with this potential $500,000 cut to, to what you all are trying to do at Morehouse, what is the pitch that your school is making to state representatives to preserve that money and really uh, continue the work? Yeah. I mean, this wasn't a center we came up with haphazardly. You know, we reviewed all the available evidence that existed out there and wanted to see what the gaps were. And, you know, we... You know, the center was based off of this report from nine maternal mortality review committees about improved training for physicians. I mean, we have a unique stance where we're training future learners and leaders. We wanted to take an integrated approach. Everyone is working in silos. We knew that we needed to think outside the box and how we were going to conduct the work that we're going to do. We care about the women in Georgia. We are number one in the social mission of addressing health health inequities and health disparities in the state. And and we have the manpower and and the and the um the brain power. I mean, we have amazing faculty and staff at Morehouse School of Medicine that are dedicated to the cause. And we don't want to see another woman die for something that no woman should die from. It should be the most wonderful experience that someone should have. And for a lot of women, there's fear and anxiety and, and a risk that you're going to die, especially if you live in Georgia. We're last. We're, you know, some people are saying, oh, we're on par with other states. No, we're last. And we don't know what the true numbers are because a physician can document a death one way. But that's all about interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of women and their experiences are not being documented in a way where they might be being captured in the Maternal Mortality Review Committee. You know, we, we've been a staple in this state for a long time, and we're committed, and, and, and they need us. That's Dr. Natalie Hernandez, Assistant Professor at Morehouse School of Medicine, talking with Morning Edition host Leah Fleming. Well, we just heard about some potential budget challenges to an effort to affect maternal mortality. Now to a doctor working in maternal health care. Keisha Collins teaches medical students at Mercer University in Macon. She's also the only OBGYN for the 16 health clinics of community health care systems in rural central Georgia. Collins thinks maternal health is too narrowly focused on pregnancy and says if you really want healthy mothers and children, you should take a holistic approach to women's health in general. She told GPB's Grant Blankenship that doctors should begin asking one question of women in their care. I just need them to ask the question, what are your plans for future fertility? And then that can help guide us. So you know what my problem is? How are we going to know if my history is going to go over? I'm going to do it the same way. So my theory on this is, okay, we have a prenatal schedule. Every four weeks up until 28 weeks, every two weeks to 32, then every week till you deliver. But if you know you have a high-risk population, why are we still using the square model to look at something that's round? If we know they're having early deliveries, why aren't we seeing them every two weeks? Why don't we have someone going to their home to make sure they come? Why aren't we going to them versus waiting for them she to come to us? Her daughter was with her and she was uh -huh. hungry. Uh -huh. She said you guys were talking about oncology before. Let me just talk a little bit about the FQHC. FQHC stands for Federally Qualified Health Center. And so these are institutions that are pretty much funded or supported somehow by the government. And anybody really can be seen. We see people with no insurance. We take Medicare, Medicaid. But if you have no insurance, more importantly, they have what's called a sliding fee scale. So based on your income or lack of income, they assign you to a level and you're able to get care. For the most part, for $25, you can come in and you can get most of what you need. We also have a licensed clinical social work. We actually have two. 
if I'm working on obesity, for example, and I want to get my ladies to stop eating Twinkies at midnight, I got to address why they're eating not why they're eating Twinkies. I had a patient yesterday, but she had hmm, an incident a couple months ago, and um, she's really struggling with some mental issues from that. And so I can kind of address her bleeding, and I can say, "Hey, um, can you would you like seeing a therapist?" And so she was there. She set her up for an appointment made her cry a little bit, she got it all out, but we can start the healing process. And so I gotta fix that problem before I take the cigarettes away. Like I don't feel like if I, you know, never sleep I can, you know, save all of Jeffersonville. It it, it won't happen like that until we have more people who are interested. It's a small community, and so usually I'll see a patient, and then the next thing you know I'll see their friend or I'll see the grandma or the mom, and so it kind of works for a small community. There's a subway. There's a post office that closes at lunchtime, by the way. You know, when you try to go on your lunch break, they're not open. Um, <laughs> there are two restaurants. There's a Piggly Wiggly, which I found out today is up for sale. Okay, so how am I going to tell my patient to lose weight if she can't buy fresh veggies? How do you recruit a physician to an area like this and get them to stay there and take care of the community if they're like, I don't want to live in a place like this? So our job is to plant those seeds early and start targeting elementary school, high school, and then getting that heart so you don't have to convince them that they should come back and live here and then just go to Macon when they want to go out to dinner and come back home. One of my students that I had in 2012 is actually finishing residency now and is going back to work in Albany as an OBGYN in the fall. I've been grooming her this entire time and I have several others who are either in college or med school or high school and so we have to give back. We have to get more people on Thank you. more yes, troops. I'll put it in right now. Thank you. No offense to guys. Everybody shines when mom dazzles. Everybody does. If she's eating a salad, everybody's eating a salad. And so if we put our focus in the right place, then we get the effects that we want. But if we're looking at pieces of the story, then we don't really get to the root issue. We don't get to the root cause of what's really going on with our women. That's Dr. Keisha Collins on addressing the bigger picture of maternal mortality in rural Georgia. And our thanks to GPB's Grant Blankenship for that audio postcard. Coming up, sustainable fashion doesn't mean you have to wear mom jeans and hemp. A guide to slow fashion with style. We'll try that on Precise when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. For more than a century, Georgia cotton farmers helped grow the American economy and the garment industry. The clothing industry has evolved many times over since. Now you can pop into a store and walk out with a $5 t-shirt, probably synthetic and not likely made in Georgia or even the U.S. After decades of increasingly cheap, fast fashion, there are signs of change. Sustainable fashion was on some catwalks for spring 2020 shows. Fast fashion giant Forever 21 filed for bankruptcy on Monday. And a growing consumer movement is reevaluating the social and environmental impacts of the global clothing trade. This weekend, store owner Melissa Gallagher will convene a symposium on slow fashion at Atlanta's Pond City Market to draw attention to building a wardrobe meant for durability. Melissa, welcome. 
Hi, thank you. Thanks for being here. So walk us through the slow fashion movement a little. What are, what are some of the basic ideas? So slow fashion, um, a lot like the slow food movement, is sort of about understanding the the provenance of your clothing. Um, Where was it made? What is it made of? Um, Who made it? And so um, the idea sort of uh, takes it slowly. Um, Fast fashion has meant that our clothing cycles, um, we've gone from, you know, four seasons or five seasons of clothing a year to um, up to 50 or 60 a year where shops are dropping new styles every single week. And um, and so it's about kind of reversing those effects, um, slowing down how much we buy, um, buying things of quality that are meant to last, um, and then looking to make sure that the workers who made it are paid a fair wage um, and that the environmental concerns are also in check. Um, you know, the textile industry is uh, one of the biggest polluters and it uses tons of water. And so um, things like natural fibers, organic dyes, um, zero waste in terms of, or at least low waste in terms of how patterns are cut and clothing is designed. Um, So just looking at every step of the way and making sure that we're considering um, not only the people that make it, um, but the environment. Now, you first opened your store, Coco and Misha, as a pop-up indicator a couple of four years ago, I guess. Almost. But you didn't originally envision it centering around slow fashion or this movement. So what changed for you? So um, I originally started and we had some vintage clothing by some friends of mine. And um, and as I was writing my business plan and I, I got my business loan, I realized I had this chunk of money that I'd never had before sitting in the bank. And um, I started to think about how I wanted to spend it and who I wanted to get this. And um, very quickly, I started to realize that I wanted that money to go to small businesses, uh, local makers. Um, and I wanted to keep up with the vintage. And as I was shopping for the vintage, um, I became very acutely aware of how much we waste. And um, if you spend some time in some thrift stores, it would be impossible to ignore um, not just what we throw away, but I mean, we throw away things that are brand new um, straight out of the stores. And so um, looking at that waste and and talking to friends about it, someone introduced me to the movie The True Cost, um, which is a documentary film that talks about the garment industry and the effects of it. And um, at that point on, I I couldn't go back personally. And I certainly wasn't going to let my business that spends much more on clothing um, go that direction either. And so um, we made changes and we, we slowly started introducing some of the small sustainable brands that I got excited about. And, um, and as support grew for it, we, we grew it. One of the things that you're doing this weekend is a bunch of speakers are coming in to talk about this, what you just unpacked there, the kind of supply chain, all of these different factors. One of them is Elizabeth Klein. She's author of a book called The Conscious Closet, which explores the impact of fast, the fast fashion industry, one of the speakers. She also wrote a book called Unzipped about the fast fashion industry. Here she is talking about H&M's business model with all things considered. A store like H&M produces hundreds of millions of garments per year. They put a small markup on the clothes and earn their profit off selling an ocean of clothing. An ocean of clothing. This is all about volume. Now, H&M, for the record, is just one of many companies that has come under fire for fast fashion, but has said it wants a climate neutral supply chain by 2030. If the markup is so low, can it still make money with sustainability in mind? Well, I think that we're going to have to see prices go up. Um, I think Forever 21 is a great example of that. Them um, filing for bankruptcy um, shows that it is not sustainable to do it at the model of uh, low prices, uh, you know, 
$7 jeans, somebody, somebody paid, somebody somewhere paid for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is not sustainable. So what is sustainable is um, paying fair wages and ensuring that our environment, <laughs> our future is protected. And so I think that, um, that the prices are going to have to go up and consumers are going to have to adapt to that. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. But I also want to hear from Zara, another big maker, announced a retailer, rather, a global retailer, announced earlier this year it will be using only sustainable materials by 2025. Here's Mark Sumner. He's a fashion and sustainability professor from the UK talking about that. Sometimes you can reduce one particular environmental impact and at the same time by the actions you've taken you're actually increasing impact somewhere else. So the, the idea of having something sustainable is, is, is really ambiguous and, and that's one of the challenges I think for consumers and commentators when they're trying to look at the statements being made by brands like Zara. You know, what does that actually mean? The meaning is important here because sustainability is is a great marketing tool right now, right? Exactly. And it's even called greenwashing in some circles, that you are selling that you're environmentally responsible. You're basically greenwashing your message. How do, you, how do we make sure that things are indeed sustainable? So... Obviously, yeah, I think that that raises a really good point. And um, one of the things that I always preach is progress over perfection. So many people um, start in this journey. And if you do some research, it can almost tie your hands on doing anything because you start to realize, oh, my God, if I buy anything, I'm just contributing to the problem. Um, but I do think that supporting companies when they make these statements um, is important. And, and then taking that support really to to small businesses, um, to makers and designers that don't just say, um, you know, we practice sustainability, but that they are transparent about it. They tell you um, where they're sourcing their um, textiles, um, how they're doing their designing, who's sewing their clothing. Um, transparency is the best way. And as consumers, we have to educate ourselves. So um, you should check the tags on every garment. The tag is only going to tell one part of that story. Um, you know, I always think that one of the benefits to educating myself is it has slowed my consumption down. Um, if checking the tag tells one part of that story, um, I then kind of force myself to, you know, do some legwork online and, um, and see what I can find that will ensure that what I'm, uh, buying, you know, there are some garments made in China that are made ethically. Um, and then there are some garments made in the United States that are made unethically. So, um, so doing some work and, and like I said, hopefully that does slow us down. That's a good thing. Melissa Gallagher is with us. She's the founder of the clothing store Coco and Misha and organizer of the Slow Fashion Symposium that's being held at Pond City Market over this weekend. Well, that, but that's a challenge for you, right? You are in the business of selling clothing. So, you know, part of what goes into that is the whole marketing of the idea that, oh, you know, I don't want to wear jeans that are out of date or I, I just need a new outfit. I'll feel much better. So you're advocating for people to slow down their consumption trends, but you want people to come into your store and buy stuff. How does this work out for you? So it definitely is a little bit in conflict. I certainly wonder, you know, we don't need more stuff. Um, And uh, I have a quote on a chalkboard outside the shop by Elizabeth Klein. And it says something along the lines of uh, sustainability isn't a product. It's not something you buy. It's a movement. And, um, and, and I believe that. And, um, but I don't think that people are going to stop 
shopping completely. And I'd like to be a resource for people, not just for education, but for if you really, really want a new dress to wear to a wedding this weekend, that hopefully I have something there for you. And um, we do support some small brands that are very transparent that, I mean, really small, like some of the brands, it's, you know, the designer is the sewer, um, is the dyer. Um, and uh, and so we hope to, to give you options. Um, and then in addition to that, we do a lot of vintage. Um, so uh, anything previously owned is um, the most sustainable thing that you can buy. Okay, so some of the ways that the Conscious Closet, one of the things that Elizabeth does is help lay out how you should begin this. Like, how do you begin? Is it about going to, you, this is also concurrent with the whole Marie Kondo idea of like throwing things out right. that you don't need anymore. Where do you begin to build a Conscious Closet? Well, and, and one of the things in Elizabeth's book, The Conscious Closet, um, you know, she talks about you don't begin by just throwing it all away because that's definitely part of the problem is um, how we dispose of clothes and how quickly we dispose of clothes. Um, so what I typically do, and, and this is my own personal advice, is um, I look for holes in my wardrobe. Um, if I want something like a black shirt, and, and let's face it, we probably all have plenty of black shirts. I really sit on it and I think about, um, do I need a black shirt with long sleeves? Do I need a black shirt with short sleeves? Is it not a black shirt that I needed, but I was looking for a cropped shirt because I feel like that's a trend I'm seeing. And so again, I, I try to slow my consumption and I'm a shopper. I love, love, love to shop. It's one of the reasons I own a shop. <laughs> so, um, so I try not to pass judgment when people are like, I just, you know, I couldn't help myself at TJ Maxx. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I think just shopping more consciously, identify the holes in your closet. Um, once I kind of identify that hole, I sort of determine whether I think it's something that can be met with something vintage um, or something thrifted. Uh, let's just say it is something a little bit more trend forward. Um, that's typically where I'll hit the thrift stores first. Um, like I said, good news or bad news, um, we're throwing away things very quickly, often with tags by nice brands and even well-made stuff. So uh, a lot of times I don't have any trouble finding that thing. In fact, if anything, I feel like it's harder to find things from the 70s and 80s that are in really great shape. And so um, so I'll try to thrift for it first. And then if not, I do my research and I start looking for ethical and sustainable brands that might make that piece. And I sort of plug that way. And, and even when I see something and I'm super excited about it, I really do try to wait and think, you know, every morning, am I waking up thinking about that piece? Do I need that piece? <laughs> So that's different than, um, you know, cruising on Amazon at night and just ordering stuff when you're feeling, you know, that exactly. there's nothing on Netflix. Exactly. Um, if you're going to go that way, I recommend you do it on ThreadUp or Poshmark, where you are buying previously owned and where most of my impulse buys are, are thrift buys. <laughs> We're not talking about everything made of hemp, obviously. High fashion has adopted sustainability. I'm thinking of Airdem, uh, Stella McCartney on the high end. But the other brands, you know, like Everlane, Eileen Fisher... These are at price points. The price point there is often a deal breaker for people, right? People can't afford to drop hundreds of dollars on a single item. So how do people within this movement, like yourself, respond to this? It's absolutely indisputable economic reality for people that can't spend money, but they want to look on trend. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that goes to the mindset. Um, well, first of all, we've experienced inflation in almost every um, different industry except clothing. Um, clothing has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And because of that, our mindset is that we should have more of it. And um, 
I think there's some quotes in um, in both of Elizabeth's books about the number of items in our closet. And so uh, I think a lot of it has to be looked at. How, what do we already own that might fit that trend? How can we rewear? And how can we sort of... Um, reframe, you know, what's in style by, um, by being more creative. Uh, I think the other thing is, is thrifting secondhand. Um, there's no shortage of things that are completely on trend. And if you do believe that fashion is expression and creativity, I think that there's plenty to work with within budget. In fact, I meet so many girls that are so stylish and, um, and unique and original, and they haven't, they don't set foot in, in, H and M. If anything, I think that it's it's probably less original when H and M is pumping out a half a million of each piece. <laughs> well, often conversations about fashion do center around women, but men are also consumers of clothing and play a role in this complex industry dynamic. How do they figure into the slow fashion movement? You know, I often think that we can take some um, some clues from men. Uh, I don't want to generalize. Yeah, too let's much. say traditionally gendered men. Let's exactly. Say yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, I know my husband has been wearing the same style of Levi's for like twenty years, and um, and he buys a pair. He wears it until there are holes in it, and they he absolutely cannot wear it anymore. And um, and then he buys another pair of them. And I think oftentimes we are hesitant to uh to wear things until they're threadbare and and i say we and again this is you know the the gender normative you know uh women versus men but i think that um that there are some clues there when i go to thrift stores and i look for my husband i'll be like see if you can find me my my levi's um i often struggle to find what he wants because um by the time it's been donated it's it's not in the condition to be donated anymore. Um, so one of the things, you know, I'm doing with him is trying to patch and extend that life a little bit more. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of men have it a little bit smarter. They're, my husband's style hasn't changed a lot. Um, he, he doesn't have seasons as much. He has um, warm weather and cold weather. <laughs> and so I think that we kind of need to get back to that as women. And, um, and that it, my husband's still very stylish and he, um, you know, he has designers that he likes, uh, but he certainly doesn't struggle with, um, oh, my gosh, I just can't stop buying as much as I do. <laughs> so for this, you were just talking about uh, individual consumer based models for changing the system. Is the symposium about that or is it about activism? Is it about changing the corporate model in some way? You know, we're sort of approaching this first symposium. Oh, well, this is the second one. The first one was though just a single panel discussion. This has grown a lot in the past year. Um, we're sort of approaching it from an individualist uh, model. Uh, we are doing some activism and um, and trying to give some advice and resources. But I do think Atlanta is a little bit new to the sustainable fashion movement, and um, and so. Uh, I think if you can inspire the individuals, um, we really do vote with our dollars. And I think that that can be very powerful in terms of activism. Melissa Gallagher, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Melissa Gallagher is founder of the store Coco and Misha and organizer of the Slow Fashion Symposium taking place this weekend at Pond City Market. You can look for more information online at gpbnews.org. And I'm going to be doing a bunch of stuff in this next week. I'm speaking with Malcolm Gladwell at the First Center of the Arts on Thursday, the 11th. We're going to be talking about his latest book, and it's called Talking to Strangers. He is, of course, the host of the Revisionist History podcast. He's a New York Times bestseller. Five 
New York Times bestsellers, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, so much to talk about there. And I think Talking to Strangers is actually one of his darker books yet, inter- digging into how we interact with strangers and why things often go wrong, why we miss signals and the ripple effects that it can have on the world. Now, the following Sunday, I'll be at the Fox Theater interviewing MSNBC host Rachel Maddow about her new book, Blowout. It's her, in her first book, Drift, It took on the U.S. military and became a number one New York Times bestseller. Well, this one is so timely, takes on the big oil and gas industry. In her view, the threats they pose because they're guided by something other than civic duty to democracy at large. And I'm really looking forward to sharing the stage with these two authors. You can find more information on both at our website. That's all at gpbnews.org. On Second Thought, produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Interns, Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our official dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time doing slow radio with On Second Thought.